Okay, so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. We've been going through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, seeing it as a history of God's people Israel, but also of how it is a record of God's grace in people's lives so that his promises of a future king would all come true. And so we continue on with the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of all the, of the peoples, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure we've all seen the phrase around, maybe on cards, wall art, even on our lips when we sang... Um, the carol, O Holy Night, the phrase, the weary world rejoices. It's such a great truth that describes the power of Christmas. The weary world can rejoice. Are you weary? Anyone weary here? Anyone rejoicing? If you're not able to rejoice, what can you do about it, right? I think that's where we would all love to be, at a place of rejoicing. How can we be the weary world rejoicing, as the Christmas carol says, to the point where we fall down our knees, on our knees in worship? Rejoicing. That's what we want. And at one level, the world has helpful ways to get us to rejoice. They say it's about managing expectations and relationships. You know how wrong expectations can be so wearisome and tiresome, right? We have to get to that right level of expectations 
um, with ourselves, but also with the people around us. Don't be too hard on yourself, but also don't be too indulgent on yourself. Same goes for relationships. Don't be too hard on others, expecting so much, but also don't be so indifferent and self-preserving. Because we want substantial relationships, and substantial relationships will involve a mutual degree of um, expectations and claims on one another. You know, all of that, what, I, what I've just said, that's like a lifetime of discovery, and perhaps for some, a lifetime of therapy, too. But as the church, we would say that that approach is wholly inadequate if you ignore God, who is the source and giver of truth, right? We have to be right with ourselves and right with others, but most of all, right with God. When that internal and the horizontal and the vertical are all rightly aligned, that is when we can experience deep joy. That's why God expects that the world, as wearisome as it is, that we can rejoice. And here is what is so awesome about God, this powerful and great God that we worship. The principle here is that the relationship that we have with him, he would get us outside of ourselves to think about him more. That's the principle. The principle that marks our relationship with God. He gets us to think outside of ourselves and be able to think of him more. We're so much full of power and possibility, but also fallibility and self-absorption and even self-sabotage. And the only way that we can escape ourselves is by being freed of ourselves, and God can do that. Where we start to get right with God, where we experience that rightness, so that we're even empowered to overcome our own unrightness and weariness. We've got to get beyond ourselves, by someone greater than ourselves, and God's grace makes it possible, where we encounter him in a time of worship. That's what happened the first Christmas when Jesus was born, a mere baby, but who was not merely a baby. Do we know who this baby was? Are we clear about the right meaning of Christmas and who Jesus really is? Jesus is the true king who is stronger than all others. He can get me to stop thinking about myself so much to start experiencing joy, deep joy. So how can the weary world rejoice? God's grace and kindness for the weary world would be worshiping the true king who is stronger than all others, even me. How can the weary world rejoice? By God's grace and his kindness. That those who would be weary, we would be able to worship the true king who is stronger than all others, even me. That's what we'll see from our passage in Matthew chapter 2. Three points. First, worship comes from prophecy. Look at verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, that was a prophecy that was building on the promises of God, first made to Abraham and then to David. That's what the genealogy that we read and, I mean, we looked at for the past four weeks has covered. It highlights for us Abraham and David. So this prophecy here is just recalling the original promises, God's promises and prophecies. That is what would capture 
our attention and our lives and start to shape us. And let's all make sure that we understand God's promises and prophecies, that they are the foundational architecture of our lives. And that shaping involves coming under the promised leader that God would send, a ruler who would shepherd his people, someone who would care for us, one we would want to be led by, one who would lead us and we would want them to lead us, one we would want to come under, a leader who would even know me out of all the people, that kind of care, but also a leader who would lead me to greater things beyond myself, with others, together, the community, for God's eternal purposes. See, that prophecy is so significant, and it is the background to Jesus being born. Jesus is born in the days of Herod, who was the king of Israel, we're told. Herod was a powerful king. He was installed by the Roman Empire. Did you, do you think that Herod really cared about God and the law of Moses and the history of Israel? No, he cared about the Caesar the divine son of the gods, and the law of Herod, which is where whatever he says goes. Herod ruled with an iron fist, and Israel had no choice but to settle for this king and work with him out of fear and survival. So then one day, up rocked these three men to the king, wise men who came from the east, and they go to King Herod and they say, Hey, we would like to see the king of the Jews. <laughs> you know, that's like someone coming to me and saying, I would like to see the pastor. <laughs> and I say, I'm the pastor. And they go, ha, stop it. I'm serious. Show, us, show me the real pastor, right? <laughs> that's what's going on with the wise men. And so how do you think this narcissistic king felt? Matthew 2, 3. When King Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. See, basically, when Herod is troubled, everyone else will feel his anger, like the whole city of Jerusalem. And so thus would begin the harassment and even the sh and chase, shock after shock for Joseph and Mary, weary as they would be. See, for Israel, Herod was not in the line of David. So Israel did not see him as their legitimate king sent from God. Israel was waiting for God's plan to be fulfilled, determined by the prophecies and promises, where a king like David, a worthy leader, would usher in true worship and blessing for his people. And isn't that the surprise of Christmas? The shepherd ruler that was prophesied, not just the promised leader of God's people, but the one whom God's people would actually worship as well. The wise men, they were so eager to find him. They wanted to come under his rule. They would literally go to great lengths to find this one, traveling so far, following the star, to know that God was bringing his people together again. Now, before we go on, you may be, some of you may be wondering, who are these wise men, the, the magi, right? No one can know for sure, but a couple of reasonable, reasonable suggestions are that they were religious leaders from lands far away, like where God's people were exiled centuries earlier, who knew about the Jewish prophecies and actually hoped in them. And that's a legitimate answer because even Matthew mentions the exile earlier, 
organizing Israel's history into these three units. Verse 17, from Abraham to David and David to the exile or the deportation and the deportation to the Christ. So these men might represent people coming back from the exile, people coming out of exile, people rightly recognizing the king who leads them out. Now the other explanation is that Maybe they represented Gentiles, not exiles, but Gentiles, those who would come from afar to recognize the king, not just the king of Israel, but the king of the world. That's what God's promises were always about, not just for Israel, but redemption for the world. Speaking about this future Messiah king, this is what Psalm 72 verse 8 says. Here's another prophecy. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Those are some possible explanations of what the Magi, the wise men, were um, representing. So much anticipation that these men were able to then finally meet the fulfillment of God's promises and open the present that God had sent them. You hear me correctly? The men, they came bearing gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they were receiving the greater gift, Jesus, whom God's promises and prophecies were coming true fully. You know, not many people can move our hearts like that the way that the baby Jesus did for the wise men. And in that case, no one else should move our hearts like that. But would we stop for a moment to uh, consider preparing our hearts and minds to embrace a king like Jesus, if you already haven't done so? And even if you have embraced Jesus, would you recognize that he is someone worthy of worship, that we would want to submit ourselves to him? You know, we need to prepare ourselves like that because our typical American default attitude is, whoever you are, you have to earn my respect, right? As in, I'm not obligated to you in any way, and if there's going to be anything between us, then you have to prove yourself to me first. That's quite a superficial attitude, actually. It's like just a very basic defensive, self-protective posture where you're suspicious of people. And if we can disengage that wall deep down, I think we all want to be ruled by the kind of king and shepherd that God had promised us. You know why? Because we were made for more. And we need God to bring that out in us. We want someone to inspire us, motivate us, move our hearts to awe and worship, get us to reach our created potential. A great leader is someone who would lead his followers to greatness as well. Folks, I wonder, do we see Jesus that way? Joining the wise men, that the promises and the prophecies of God would lead us to his gift to his people, a ruler and shepherd worthy of worship and full of possibilities, the greater purposes God created us and saved us to live. I hope that's how Christmas can impact us. 
And maybe it just needs a simple reset in our minds and attitudes. Maybe it's something that you could resolve to start embracing more in the new year. It's not too late. Let's recognize Jesus rightly, the newborn king, and align ourselves to him. From Bethlehem of Judea would come a ruler who would shepherd his people. Our second point, worship comes from weakness. Not just from prophecy, but worship from weakness. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, right there, that verse, that verse would be the great paradox that this non-threatening, helpless little baby was worthy of worship. He didn't need to be in full royal regalia for people to bow down to him, but he was in swaddling cloths. He didn't have legions of armies in formation behind him, just two shocked parents. He wasn't even yet capable of making any demands on his people, yet his people would pour out treasures to him. You know, later in his life, Jesus would be transfigured. And um, he would, the disciples would see him in all of his glory, standing next to Moses and Elijah, because they were recognizing that all the promises and prophecies were right there, standing in front of them, Jesus. But here, these wise men, they would be recognizing Jesus, who was transfigured in his glory downward, from a two-cell embryo, now to a baby. Psalm 8.2 says this, Out of mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That would be the significance of the nativity scene. The baby Jesus would display the strength of God. God could work even through a little child. And isn't that what we want to think about our God? That he is that powerful? God can work through any means, even against the strongest of enemies who would not pose any obstacle to him. You know, that's like when you're playing basketball with someone, you're playing pickup basketball, and, you know, they're not that good. So you say, I'm going to shoot, and I'm going to play with my left hand only, if you're a right-handed player, right? Because you're so confident that you can still win. You're just that much better. That's what God is like in his strength. I can work, and I can work even through this little baby Jesus. Really, the weary world has reason to rejoice because of him. This is how feeble Jesus would be. The wise men, they would worship him, and after that, he would be driven away like a helpless refugee. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Herod rightly thought that Jesus was a threat to his power, but he wrongly thought that he could eliminate the baby. It might have appeared that the baby was on the run, but God says, my foes will not be able to stand up to this little baby. On the contrary, that baby is strong because I am strong. And because I am strong, he is strong. You know, if God can defeat his enemies, really scary, powerful enemies, even with someone like the baby Jesus, then he can work through any of our weaknesses too. 
Our weaknesses are not too weak for him. Maybe you've heard this quote. It's not a Christian one in origin, but it is nevertheless true. In fact, it is most true because the God of the Bible, he is the sovereign one who providentially leads his peoples. This quote goes, I asked God for strength, and he gave me difficulties to work through. I asked God for wisdom, and he gave me problems to solve. I asked God for prosperity, and he gave me brains and brawns to work out. I asked God for courage, and he gave me dangers to overcome. I asked God for love, and he gave me people to care for. I asked God for favors, and he gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted and everything I needed. Christmas reminds us that God specializes in weakness, because what is weakness to us is not weak to him. He can redeem situations, and even if he doesn't redeem it in the way that we would want, it always starts with Jesus redeeming us. And he would redeem our outlook and the way we see things and our attitudes about, our, about weariness and our ability to trust him more than anything or anyone else, even myself. This is the power of Christmas. The song also goes, not only the weary world rejoices, but the thrill of hope. It's not that Jesus will do whatever I want, but he's getting us to a place of weakness where the Lord can now say, now I can work in you the way I want, not the way you want. He can work powerfully in us, no matter how weak we think we are. And we can be confident of him because of Jesus and his true victory. That's our final point. Worship comes from victory. God protects his son from the evil powers to claim victory. Look at verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay? The angel speaks to Joseph, helps him to escape Herod, and, and whom, who we most clearly see, he does not want to worship this king. He wants to kill him, right? And so Joseph is directed to Egypt. Matthew tells us this is what was spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Such a simple word, but had such hidden power to this prophecy that we need to understand what it means. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea said that of Israel, referring back to the Exodus when God delivered his people from Egypt. Hosea was looking back to that first Exodus, but he was saying it as a prophecy about something that was going to happen in the future. Israel was also referred to as God's son, and so God's son, Israel, would face another Exodus. This was Hosea's way of saying that God loved his people so much that he would free them from slavery, even though his people, well, they really weren't in slavery. They were under Roman occupation. So many thought that they were going to get a king who would free Israel from political slavery. But what God was doing, the truth was that Jesus would be freeing his people from a deeper form of slavery, spiritual slavery. Matthew is quoting Hosea because the prophecy is being fulfilled. The birth of the baby Jesus marks a whole new period in Israel's history on the scale of something like the Exodus. Last night in our Christmas Eve service, we got illusions that Jesus was bringing about a new creation, and today he's bringing about a new Exodus. Jesus even seems to be a new kind of Moses. That's what Matthew has in mind. 
because in the next passage, we didn't read it, but we learned that Herod found out that Joseph and the baby escaped, so he was so mad he wanted to kill all the babies under two. Here, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod thought he could kill the baby Jesus. He missed the opportunity, but just to make sure, he's going to kill all the baby boys. Isn't that what happened back in Egypt? The Hebrews first, they just kept multiplying. Pharaoh said, we're going to kill the baby boys. We're going to stop their development. But Moses was secretly born and escaped. Matthew is uh, seeing allusions in the birth narrative of Jesus that God will be like Moses and free his people again from another evil master. That would be Herod, who was not the legitimate king of Israel. But behind the king was an even greater power, the devil, who would oppose God and his people, keep them in spiritual captivity. Folks, this is why we read Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is giving us a true perspective, a true understanding of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 2. The mother and the son, they're going to be persecuted, attacked, and chased. Rightly, they are weary. The devil thought that he could eliminate the baby Jesus, but God the Father would claim victory. The father protects the son, and the father and the son would serve the father's cause, fulfilling all of the promises. So we need to realize what is going on when it comes to our salvation, really, and who Jesus is. Salvation is not just being, um, being given blessings and gifts because we're on the nice list and not the naughty list. You know, our church, we promote the book when Santa heard the gospel because Santa needs the gospel too. And he needs the gospel, especially for teaching such foolish things like you want to be nice and not naughty. None of us can be nice enough for God unless we're freed from the power of the devil. That's when we serve a new master. That's where we say we have a greater master who has claimed victory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is saying we serve a new master. Can you say that you have been saved like that, freed from the power of the devil? Do you claim victory in Christ and really celebrate Christmas? See, just as we need to grow out of Santa theology, are we able to grow into true Christmas theology, to be clear about it and to claim it for ourselves? God has won the victory. We are now subjects to him and, his Lord, and the Lord Jesus We've been freed from slavery to sin and death and the devil. This is a Pentecostal joke, so I will, uh, you will know that this is not the kind of stuff that we ordinarily talk, ordinarily talk about, but this is true, and I have used this in a different setting or in a different way. But here's a Pentecostal joke for us, okay? There's a poor woman. She had absolutely nothing to eat, so she's crying out to God, and she's praying, Lord, would you fill my pantry with food? Will you... Please help me, God. Help me to survive. Don't let me die. I believe you can do it. I know you can do it. The neighbor was an atheist, and he heard her praying these prayers, screaming it out, so desperate that she was. And so he said, I'm going to prove her wrong. 
So what does he do? He goes out and he buys all this food, brings all these groceries over, puts them in front of her door, rings the doorbell, and then hides in the bushes. The woman comes to the door, she opens it, and she sees all this food. And she goes, hallelujah, the God did it, the Lord did it, he provided all this food. And then as she's praising God, the atheist neighbor come, jumps out and says, ha ha, you think that God did it, but I did it. I was the one who brought all the groceries. I was the one who brought it to your house. I was the one who rang your doorbell. The woman looked at him, stunned, and then praised God again. Thank you, God. You did it, God. You did it. You even used the devil to do it. <laughs> no foe is too great for God. Your weariness is not too great for God. The devil's lies who says, you have nothing left in the tank. Please let us not project our weaknesses onto God, thinking that he will accept our poor excuse, the letter from the doctor. No, he says to you, child, rise. Let me draw this to a close. How? How? Application. Matthew 2's Christmas story presents to us an intriguing challenge. You will either worship Jesus or you will war against him. Those are the two options. Are you like the wise men or are you like the threatened king? Who do you side with? Who do you fall down in worship? Recognize who he is and therefore literally, like willingly, want to lay down your life. Or are you threatened by Jesus? Let me ask again, can you say that you are freed from the power of the devil, from spiritual slavery, and that you now are aligned with the greater master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the good news if, you, if you're not there yet. Christmas is the time when it is just so inviting to come to hear about Jesus. So glad that you're here with us if you're not a, a regular it's so inviting because Jesus is found as a weak, vulnerable, unthreatening baby. And people would gladly come to him. God would make it very easy for you to consider receiving him. And it's not so that you can push around this baby and make demands of him. But just like the wise men that we would see that he was worthy of our hearts, our lives, our worship. That he commands and he calls you to him. You see the, the baby, but you also see the power of God, power to claim you. And for those of us who do believe, who do believe what God is doing in the world, his kingdom and his promises through his son, we need to know that there are powers at work against us. That's why we feel weary. Maybe some of us are really running on fumes, full of responsibilities, some of us just are expending so much nervous energy in our heads and minds. I, too, had to recognize that for myself. Spiritual powers would be directing me away from God, would put circumstances into my life that would overwhelm me, tell me how I was wrong, how I'm in so much pain, how life's too hard. Spiritual powers would feed me lies that I would want to believe about myself so that I would just stay obsessed with myself, focused on my thoughts, rather than claiming the victory that I have in Christ. Breaking free of myself, 
through the victory that Christ won for me. That's Christmas. That's why we, the weary world, can rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for giving us a, a clear, powerful understanding of what that first nativity scene was like. That familiar scene that we all know so well. We thank you for your word to us, especially from Revelation chapter 12, that we understand that we, as your people, have been freed from the devil, the tyranny of the evil one, and now serve a greater Lord, the fulfillment of all of your promises and prophecies. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you, we want to obey you, and we thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness upon us and your power to claim us and to use us for the kingdom and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.